Hello and welcome back to The Deep Dive. This is your host, John Latiri. This week, I bring you part two of my conversation with Sam Hammond of the Niskanen Center. Last week, we discussed Sam's vision for a free market welfare state, one that combines an embrace of technological innovation and economic dynamism with a much stronger framework of social insurance. This week, we talk about the possibility of a more class-conscious conservatism, one that intentionally appeals to a wider array of working-class Americans from every background. We also talk about what the federal government can and should do to help foster economic growth in places that have been left behind. Policies like Opportunity Zones, passed as part of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And we look at the rising interest on the right in the idea that the federal government should be more active in fostering specific industries and industrial capabilities in the domestic economy, what's known as industrial policy. And with that, I bring you part two of my conversation with Sam Hammond. Enjoy. So I want to talk about industrial policy and dive deeper into what we're seeing on the right, which is a, a renewed interest in, and in some ways an unprecedented interest in what you might call economic nationalism or economic patriotism and how that dovetails with what we've been talking about already, about concerns about globalization and the, the blind spots that we had when we went through major seismic events like China PNTR and, and the consequences of that. You've got this strange alignment now between Tucker Carlson and Elizabeth Warren on a vision for the economy and first principles for how policymaking should be organized. You have really thoughtful people like Warren Cass from the Manhattan Institute, and you mentioned earlier Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley, you know, some folks who are ascendant in the Republican Party and the conservative movement, who have really wholeheartedly embraced the idea that what might call the neoliberal order has just flatly failed. And there's a kind of an inherent pessimism, a deep inherent pessimism to the premise of these arguments that the trade-offs have not been worth it, that even if on net globalization has benefited the economy as a whole, those benefits are highly concentrated. The median worker is no better off today than they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. This is a really interesting moment of realignment. How do you relate to those arguments and what kind of hopeful strains, I guess, do you see in that for, for a better approach to policymaking? I think the most hopeful strains is the, you know, there's a growing recognition among the conservative populist brand or, or, or set. A lot of the issues we currently face have a social class dimension to them. At the very moment when the left seems to be abandoning its affiliation with class politics to focus on race, gender, identity politics is the very moment when the left is the most professionalized hope bourgeoisie class, <laughs> class they've been. And so there's a sticky situation where folks on the left, you know, they don't want to, especially given Trump, don't want to talk about the white working class because it turns out working class people have very non-PC views. And you'll find that no matter what ethnicity they are, but you're in this little filter bubble of, of your urban educated enclave. And in a way, having your wages eroded by global capital is secondary to if you have the right views on gender or something like that. That's opened up a window for conservatives to talk about class. And so for folks like Michael Lind, has an excellent essay called The New Class War in American Affairs, trying to bring back this, this language of class. And I think that's actually quite hopeful because there are multiple ways this, this nationalist moment could go on the right. It could double down on white identity politics or it could recognize that the factors that are leading to the breakdown of rural white working class communities 
the erosion of earnings for the breadwinner, leading to falling marriage, marriage and infertility rates, leading to suicide and depression, drug overdose, etc. There's now a, a growing recognition, even, even among the, the Holly types, that the white populations in these communities are exhibiting many of the same pathologies that uh, afflicted the African-American population in America. But at the time, we, we attributed... We responded a little differently. <laughs> we responded then. very differently. We attributed it to lack of virtue or, you know, not having the work ethic. You can pull up your bootstraps. You know, we need to have better role models for black fathers, et cetera. The crack ep- epidemic, we got to crack down and throw everyone in jail. Just say no. Just say no. <laughs> and so there's now been a kind of mirror put up that is both self-reflective, but also leading to a kind of class consciousness, if, if, if you will. Like, and so the, the question is, is whether that nationalism is interpreted as nationalism in the sense of we're all one nation, we're all in this together, we're, we're going to have a more economic egalitarian message that tries to cut across all working classes and that forms a basis for a political strategy where we reach out to Hispanic and African-American and Asian working class folks, or we double down on the white identity politics and we just play to the base. It's kind of a knife edge moment we're walk, walking on. But I think really only one of those paths is, is politically viable. The other path is just a recipe for political irrelevancy. But, you know, the more the left doubles down on cultural politics, the wider that opening becomes for a savvy conservative or Republican leader to drive a wedge by both expressing a robust kind of social conservatism that speaks to white evangelicals just as much as it speaks to, to the black Baptist or the Muslim or the Hindu and say, you know, we're going to have policies that recognize these your traditional family structures that, that we don't see everything as just a social construct. Pair that with a, a working class economic message. And I think there's an opportunity to actually galvanize a, a new Republican base that grows out of this working class moment. Like I said, the alternative is just to encircle an ever shrinking population. I'll say i I don't feel like we're on the knife's edge. I feel like we've already chosen a path. They have already chosen a path, and it's it's the one of decreasing political relevance. And so I, I'm a little more pessimistic that we haven't chosen or haven't seen that choice made. Well, Trump has chosen a path. When you're the president, you have a lot of ideological power just by where you're pointing the compass, right? But I think that, you know, just as we thought there was a Tea Party moment a decade ago, and we're all going to be... We're all going to have Berkey and platoons in our backyards and stuff like that. <laughs> and we're all going to like rediscover the Constitution. These things are these things will come in waves. I am convinced that the damn Trump is broken can't be put back together. Like we've passed through, we have to you know go through through. We can't go around. <laughs> but even in the case where the Republican Party doubles down on on that kind of divisive politics, it cannot be permanent. There have been periods of American history where one party has been dominant for for a generation. That might happen, I think, but I don't think that sort of California model applies to the national politics. I think by necessity, by just having to be pulled back to the median voter, there will be a recognition. And I think that anyone other than Trump could construct this kind of agenda. But every time Trump calls out Colin Kaepernick or what have you on Twitter, it erodes his ability to actually be a credible spokesperson to, to other communities. I think it also deepens the, the, brand, the branding problem that sure. this ideological strain is going to have well beyond Trump. This is part of the like the balancing act. How do you signal that you are 
recognizing Trump's concerns and building on them while also making a sharp break, right? Yeah. I think one of the concerns I have when I hear economic patriotism is that seems like a not very subtle dog whistle for a protectionist instinct in policymaking. At least that's how it's often articulated. I'm sure there's a version of what somebody could say is economic patriotism that's not inherently protectionist and resistant to technological change. But when you kind of, you stack it up, the concern about driverless cars and the concern about unfettered free trade and the concern about immigration and all these things start to stack up towards a more protectionist, sclerotic view of the economy that seems incompatible with what your, your kind of dynamism first welfare state model you know, is directionally going for. How do you view that? Or is that a concern for you as well? Or am I overpricing my pessimism? I'm the type of person who way more substance over style, right? So if you want to take my perfect policy agenda in total and call it anything, you can call it anything you want. <laughs> if it sells, it sells, right? And even going back to the 90s, like the very Whiggish globalization Council on Foreign Relation types, you know, they used to sell globalization and, and free trade as in the national interest. And so policies will always have to go back to these kind of cliches. Well, it's not the term economic patriotism. It's, it's, it is the substance of how it's articulated. Then you, you got to quote some substance. So, so someone like Elizabeth Warren, who has adopted this economic patriotism label, I think is much is actually much more concerning to me than anything I've seen Holly or... or and, I, and I mean to include her in this, yeah. in this umbrella because this is not a single party issue. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Warren's, the specifics of her agenda, which I always rather just talk about the specifics is, you know, she wants to have every trade deal renegotiated on a standard whereby there would be an assortment of different bodies that represent labor, that represents, you know, every, every different potential stakeholder. And until they get to unanimity, there won't be a trade deal. And, and moreover, whatever trade deal we have will bake in not just U.S. level standards on human rights or labor law, environmental law, but even many standards that we, we currently don't even meet ourselves, <laughs> right? So when I first read her plan, I, you know, I, I joked like, you know, the U.S. can't even trade of itself according to this plan. No, it's another way of saying we will never have another trade deal. Right. And so this is going back to, I think intentions are way overrated. Or having a socially desirable, socially approved framing is way overrated. You can, ta you can take Warren, who by all measures is you know, extremely popular, especially with upper class educated liberals, and put that sort of quaint Midwestern affectation on a policy that's even more disastrous than Trump's trade war. Yeah, we agree on that. I think the challenge right now with having the substantive conversation about a conservative version of economic patriotism is that it's, it is still a bit nebulous. There hasn't been a, there's a jockeying, but not a clear front runner for what that, particularly the post-Trump vision of that economy is going to look like. But one feature of it that seems to be emerging is a renewed interest in industrial policy, which is an area where, again, I think we share a lot more in common than where we may disagree. But that's been something that traditionally conservative thinkers have been hostile to, even though I think you've made this case very well, and I'd like you to do it again. We've always had some version of industrial policy from time to time, kind of moving through the, through the economy. And I think we take for granted, setting aside the labeling, I think we take for granted that some things that one might call industrial policy are just a normal feature of our, how we've organized the economy. So, so speak to that. Yeah. I mean, they used to be called the American system. I don't mean to sound like Steve Bannon here. <laughs> like the US, not only is it in our blood, but like the countries that we now point to as, as examples, 
including China or Taiwan, Japan, Korea, you know, learned from the study of the American system and the kind of Hamiltonian project to industrialize America through credit, through central banking, through development banks and stuff like that, including through some protectionism, which I think is not the main causal mechanism in how industrial policy works. If it feels un-American, it's just because your concept of America is revisionist. It's It's been filtered through 50, 60 years of reinterpreting of the American system means in a kind of Jeffersonian framework. So, you know, I think George Will once said something like, you know, Jeffersonian won the war of, of language of how to, how we talk about America, but we live in Hamilton's country, right? That's right. I think that's very true. And, and one of the, going back to uh, Michael Lind, who I mentioned earlier, you know, one of the things he says is that these Jeffersonian, Hamiltonian strains in America reemerge over and over again. And there are left and right versions of it. There is left Hamiltonianism is the Green New Deal, right? It's a definite optimism, big vision for the future, how we're, we're going to use the federal government to transform the economy. Left Jeffersonianism is localism, going to the farmer's market. We need non-GMO foods or whatever. There's the exact same dichotomy on the right, only the right Hamiltonian quadrant has been relatively empty for a few generations. And so all the rhetoric we get on the right is about, you know, localism and and Berkian platoons and stuff like that. Even though, you know, objectively trade policy, cutting the corporate tax rate, that is national policy, right? Intellectual property rights, the way we fight to extend America's rather aggressive IP regime to other countries, the treatment of capital, you know, in the tax code, investments in agencies like the Department of Defense, DARPA and ARPA, the National Institutes of Health. Now, these things are all, by conventional terminology, a kind of, a kind of industrial policy. You know, in the case, the case of NIH, it's, it's a healthcare industrial policy, but it's, it's still industrial policy. It's still public investments to spur research and development, spur the R&D's commercialization, and to set up frameworks for that IP in some cases, or just open source technologies to flourish in a, in a competitive economy. You know, take, take Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is indelibly stamped with the imprint of federal investments in research and development, giving rise to the semiconductor, and paired with labor market regulations, like the fact that California doesn't enforce non-competes, that made it the Bay Area, made the knowledge of firms that were commercializing that new semiconductor technology, made that knowledge diffuse between firms because you could work in one company and move to another. There's no natural right or natural law interpretation of what, how to structure labor market regulations like non-competes, but it, we can observe and say, well, you know, if, if we think of this in terms of ecosystem creation, that turned out to be really important to the, the development of San Francisco as an, and the Bay Area as an ecosystem. And, you know, industrial policy is, and I think it's a matter of time because that, that right Hamiltonian quadrant was left empty for so long for, for somebody to step up and say, there's a different way to be a conservative. We're not going to be anti-free market. We're not going to rewrite the constitution or anything like that, but we're, we're going to understand American history and reframe a lot of the things we already do and reframe them in a way that we can talk about them more clearly. Because in, 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 a, in a way, the Jeffersonian language is, is so divorced from reality and it kind of neuters your ability to even talk about public policy. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I'll say as a caveat, I think some overinterpret the importance of federal policy and federal investment in some of those private sector success stories that you mentioned. And the heuristic I would use is you can 
certainly imagine those things happening without the federal government, but you can't imagine the federal government doing it without the private sector and commercializing a lot of those technologies. And so I think there is still a debate to be had about how crucial or how decisive the federal role was in, in some of the, the advent of some of those industries. There's always this sort of libertarian counterfactual story where it's like, well, you know, someone, someone would have came along and invented the internet eventually. Yeah. And I'm not, I actually believe that, but I'm not, I don't think that's a point worth litigating because directionally we agree. And I think those are examples of where the counterfactual is not very useful as a guide for policymaking because what actually happened reflects goals as a country that we have and that led to a lot of spinoff benefits. Right. And so we can glean a lot from that. Although I would just say, you know, in a way there's, as a frontier economy, the United States is always the, also the frontier for these debates. But if we look at going back to the China-Bangladesh story, you know, <laughs> if China just waited long enough, they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't have, you know, gotten this far in the quantum computer race, <laughs> right? <laughs> Meanwhile, Bangladesh is still making t-shirts. Right. Right. And so there's always the question of, it's less about public versus private and more about how, how they interact and not taking a strong presuppositional stance on one dominating the other as if they, they, these are two reified things, the private sector and the public sector. Really, they've always interacted and interfaced. Well, I think it's a part of what makes this a salient debate now is that we're actually talking about nationalizing certain industries or yeah. major sectors of our economy. So proceeding with caution, I guess, is the, the, the reason I recoil a little bit from some of the industrial policy arguments or historical examples is that I often see them being used for a much more aggressive federal role in what is now more private than public sectors of the economy, as if there will be no consequences for that. So sure. I, I think it's, there's a useful caution there. So I agree with you that that right Hamiltonian quadrant has been empty, so I'm interested in filling it. And so I think this is an interesting time for taking some steps in that direction. But part of what's lacking, I think, is a, a really coherent sense of what the goal of industrial policy should look like now, especially from a right-leaning perspective. Setting aside what function it served in the past, what problem are we trying to solve with it now? And what's the rationale for that? So how, how do you think through that? You know, my lodestar is long-run productivity growth, long-run GDP growth. If you look at Robert Gordon had a paper, I think it's called the, the Transatlantic Productivity Slowdown or something like that. And Robert Gordon's famous for, for his sort of book explaining the stagnation thesis that, you know, since the 1970s, we've stagnated partly because we've just sort of maxed out what technology can do for us. You can only invent the car once. You can only invent the washing machine once and so on. Electricity once. But he has a really interesting paper from, from this year where he examines the sub-industries where stagnation has been most dominant. And one of the striking findings is they are the same in the US and Europe. So that implies one thing. One, that any morality tale that tries to attribute the U.S. slow down to very particular U.S. political or corporate trends, and whether it's like the Reagan era or or our system of corporate governance, it has to square why that slowdown has incurred in the exact same industries and across the EU and across a vast array of different regimes. So, it, point one for Gordon to attributing this to more fundamental technological slowdowns. The second point is when you look at what the sub industries are, they're manufacturing, construction transportation, utilities, and broadly services. The U.S. actually has two bright spots where it stands out from where the correlation between its productivity slowdown by industry and, and Europe's have an outlier. And it's the tech boom in the 90s. The ICT boom did not come to Europe until later and was much slower. 
and then fracking. You know, fracking has been a kind of a miracle for the U.S. economy and has been an immense driver of, of growth. And that likewise hasn't come to Europe. So the first thing to note is, you know, anyone who's going after big tech because they're the, the one bright spot in an otherwise gloomy economy has a zero-sum framework because big tech hasn't come at the expense of innovation, transportation, or utilities or whatever, because we, we see a natural experiment where Europe has also had the exact same slowdowns, exact same malaise, and without the big tech unicorns. And the second thing is, you know, in terms of what industrial policy should orient around, I would say it's almost the purpose or the, the, it's like the essence of industrial policy to try to move an economy to a new technological frontier, that there are these multiple equilibrium effects where you can go down one path and become a low-wage sweatshop economy, or you can become an economy on the verge of creating weaponized artificial intelligence. Right? If we look at transportation, for example, we've locked in a lot of existing technologies into transportation. New York can barely build a public transit system anymore. I would say concentrating on that intensely would be one area that you could think of as industrial policy. Modernizing agriculture or modernizing manufacturing. The U.S., one of the reasons it didn't replace those manufacturing jobs that were lost is because there's no reason for it to happen automatically. If we adopt a model where we'll design the technology and we'll make the schematics for the iPhone and, and China will assemble it, then that's the outcome that we get. You know, there's a, a case study of where Apple claimed that the one reason they were going to locate a production facility in, in Texas, but they were unable to source a single screw. You know, in China, they would look at that and say, hey, we'll give a loan to anyone who'll build the screw, <laughs> right? Because there are these massive coordination failures where if you miss the one piece in the production chain, it makes no sense to do it there. Sometimes that's called the, the, the O-ring theory, named after the O-ring that was the one weak link in the challenger. Mm -hmm. So that's the second thing, coordination failures. And then the third is there are existing capacities that the U.S. has that are not, are not going to go away. But one of the broader slowdowns, sources of slowdown, has been this gener generic shift into services, where more and more people, nursing is the fastest growing industry, for example. Legal services have expanded. Whatever you call investment banking, <laughs> it's <laughs> some kind of service. These kind of services are non-tradable. In some cases, maybe, maybe finance, internationally competitive. Maybe a professor competes with a foreign professor. But broadly speaking, they're not, they don't have any what you would call export discipline. Bringing fundamental innovation to services could be revolutionary. But one of the problems is as long as the entire economy is optimized around 70% of people being in services, there's not going to be any profit opportunity for one actor in that economy to try to shift the whole thing because so many different pieces have to come together at the same time. And so, you know, part of this is like, let's make the, <laughs> let's make Andrew Yang's insane vision a reality. If we had really fundamental innovation in services, like take legal services, Utah is doing this really interesting experiment where they're creating these regulatory sandboxes for new models of legal services where it's still being developed. But, you know, hypothetically, you could walk into a Walmart and get a host of things done by a paralegal that you would normally have to pay super high fees to get done. Or maybe, you know, even even today, like doing like if you go on LegalZoom.com, they have to remind you over and over and over again, they're not giving you legal advice. We're just we just we just upload the documents and you fill them out. Right? And so like there's all these areas where services could just be revolutionized and Regulatory sandboxes, in the case of Utah, for example, are, are one area. We're doing regulatory sandboxes with fintech, too. 
And a lot of the times it's libertarians that are pushing these sandboxes. And I come around and say, well, actually, libertarians, you, you don't realize that you're doing industrial policy. Yeah. There's, a, I think, a, a labeling challenge that folks have in translating what, what is or isn't qualifying as, as industrial policy. I think one of, the, one of the things you often hear is, why should we trust the federal government to know what's the optimal breakdown between services jobs and manufacturing jobs? Or what's, you know, when, when is the federal government going to know that a certain goal is outmoded or impossible or not worth the trade-offs? Or, and there's a, I think a lot of the reaction is a fear of central planning and the inability of the federal government to manage those types of complex and very nuanced tasks or even to orient around the kind of goals that you're describing. Because there's an argument that just says the form of industrial policy you just mentioned with those regulatory sandboxes is a much more hands-off industrial policy than what you mentioned earlier actually sparked something for me. You said, we didn't save GM because we cared about the cars, we cared about the pensions. Actually, a lot of people care about the cars. A lot of people are making the argument that we don't want these treasured industries to erode in our country. And yeah, the pensions are the more immediate crisis from a human element, but kind of in a long run sense, it distresses people that we don't make things in this country the way that we used to, even though- Oh, I, I totally know. agree with that. That comment was about the public choice. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. No, but, but it sparked something on the industrial policy side for me as well, that we do have a very deep attachment to certain industries and certain functions in our economy. And in some cases, those don't reflect what's most valuable from an economic standpoint, or they don't map onto our policymaking infrastructure in, in a coherent way. So I think that's, that's, I'm not sure there's even a question here, but that's some of the concern mm -hmm. uh, that you hear from folks who are more suspicious of the idea of industrial policy, because they just don't trust that that's something that can be managed thoughtfully, at least without a, a ton of downsides. It sounds like you're not as worried about that, or, or at least much more hopeful that we can orient around a few clear goals. What would be the first step you'd want to see us take? How do we reorient the nature of policymaking to, to accommodate a more intentional focus on industrial policy? So one of my big ideas is that the U.S. should have a business development bank. So, you know, one of the ways to overcome the central planning issue, and, and Danny Roderick has talked about this, is that, you know, industrial policy should focus not on specific firms like Amazon HQ2 tax giveaways, but on specific activities and things that are new, in part because if you focus more on activities, so things that are inherently productivity enhancing or things that are new, is less likely to be just Boeing capturing more subsidies or something like that. This is why I was a big fan of the reauthorization to the Small Business Administration that's been proposed by, by Marco Rubio. What, what one of the things it does is it says, now, if we look at the SBA, the SBA, by the way, is just since 1953, it's a, it's a federal agency that guarantees loans to small businesses. If you look at its portfolio, it'd be the 13th largest bank in the country. It doesn't actually make the loans itself, it guarantees them, but if we just suspend disbelief for a sec. But then you break down what its portfolio is in, the number one category is, I think, full service gas stations, <laughs> then restaurants, then nail salons, and you go down the list. And in fact, I think restaurants got three times as much from 7A loans as the entire manufacturing industry or something, something like that. So we're doing a lot of this stuff already, but if, if from the lens of new or high productivity, <laughs> it's kind of a failure. And in fact, the U.S. has a development bank. It's called the government-sponsored entities, and it's a New Deal, new deal era regime where we, for whatever reason, make mortgages especially cheap because we had this value of home ownership. We can use similar tools to target much less cronyist and much more high productivity ends. And so one of the things that has been put forward in this SBA reauthorization is, you know, let's 
nudge all the existing programs in a way that that favors things of a higher R&D intensity. Let's create a new program that supplies significant capital to companies that are not just small businesses, but have intentions of becoming big businesses, intentions of scaling. So, you know, going back to your comment earlier about how small businesses are important for employment and employment growth and sucking up people who lose their jobs. It's not just any small businesses. It's, 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 it's the fast growing mm-hmm. small businesses. Young, it's really young businesses under five years that are growing quickly. And since 2000, and actually one of EIG's papers is one of the more, most sort of critical citations on this question, there's been this dearth in young high growth firm formation across all sectors. And so, you know, if we imagine that there's going to be a new generation of advanced manufacturing, a new generation of technology, we're not going to divine what that is by, you know, asking the Cassandra, but we're going to make available financing options that are extremely favorable to firms that have a high R&D intensity that use the capital towards tangible equipment investments and that can't keep coming back to the trough if they fail. It is giving an on-ramp for new technologies to compete in a global economy because otherwise they'll just go to Switzerland or Germany where they already have a really robust advanced manufacturing sector. Yeah, this is my ideal version of industrial policy. You're being modest. You deserve a lot of credit for what Rubio's done and, and, and is thinking about with that reauthorization effort and, and rallying support for it. So kudos to you for that. But I, I think an industrial policy that's fixated on new business formation and scaling businesses in technologically advanced sectors of the economy and providing an infrastructure where we're obsessive about that and injecting, Mm -hmm. as a result, competition into existing industries. And as you said, an on-ramp, it's such an easy goal to articulate. It's good politics too. It's This is the kind of thing that both parties make a lot of noise saying that they care about, but fail to distinguish the important difference between small businesses and new businesses and, and why from a policymaking perspective, we should have our thumb on the scale for one and not necessarily for the other because of the function they provide in the economy. And this gets back again to the stories that we tell ourselves getting in the way of good policymaking. There is this belief that we are living in this unprecedented era of entrepreneurship, that millennials are the most entrepreneurial generation, that everybody's starting a business in their garage and wearing a hoodie. And I think it has created this, this lethargy in our policymaking that, well, if that's the case, then we don't need to be really fixated on boosting new business formation because we live in that really disruptive environment that everybody believes we live in when we don't. And when millennial entrepreneurship rates are record low for any comparable generation at the same time. So I think that's, again, that's a, once you articulate and get people to agree on a common set of facts, it's easy to make the case for that as industrial policy. And then take that label off. Most people just think that's good policy. Forget about industrial policy or any other category. But the premise has been missing. So that's why I'm so excited about what Rubio is doing and, and hope that that kind of effort builds up steam. Another form of industrial policy could be focused on place, right? And thinking about how we, how we help struggling areas of the country. Conveniently, you have an initiative at Niskanen called the Struggling Regions Initiative. So talk about what you're focused on there and why you wanted to start that project. Right. So you know, in 2018, I did the free market welfare state, which you can think of as the big and universal big social insurance programs the rule of law and nature of social welfare. And over time, I realized, you know, this is an incomplete agenda, an incomplete, you know, vision for what a country needs. In addition to the big in general, we often need the targeted in particular, which comes to the Struggling Regions Initiative, which is really trying to rethink place-based economic development policy. And by the way, the, the, the SBA stuff really grew out of that. 
so if we if we look at why towns are depopulating across the country, for example, why cities are more expensive than they've ever been, and why California has a homeless homelessness crisis, there are a lot of things that kind of come back to this how we sort of started this discussion about globalization and the changing returns to human capital and also the changing returns to geography. You know, if you have an advanced degree and, you know, you want to do biotech, you go to Boston. If you want to start a company, start a startup, you go to San Francisco. If you want to, you know, be an investor, you go to to New York or journalism, same thing. There's these magnet cities that have, have pulled the knowledge working class to them, which in turn has caused a brain drain across the rural parts of America at precisely the time when they're reeling from an economic collapse. One of the reasons I began with the SBA and financing support for manufacturing and a strategy to scale manufacturing is partly because manufacturing doesn't have to be located really anywhere. As long as it's got a transportation network to deliver its goods, its final products. If you want to cover politics, you basically have to be in DC, right? <laughs> if you want to um, build a precision a nut that has been cut so precisely, right? Or, or you know, a computer chip or a robot that you know cleans your house for you. You, you don't have to. You don't have to be anywhere for that in particular, as long as you're near enough to a port. So there's a, a way in which, if we just revive manufacturing and really the more tangible sectors, the, the tradable sectors of the economy, that there will will take a lot of the pressure off of cities, and that will redound to non-urban areas. But then there are cases of really concentrated economic distress. So, you know, during the reparations debate that Elizabeth Warren started, you know, the debate was, do we give cash payments to descendants of slaves as a, as a form of reparations? My view on that was, you know, if you look at what the lasting leg- legacy of slavery has been, it's quite easy to see on a map. If you look at like the Raj Chetty work on economic mobility, it, it, it's if red <laughs> represents <laughs> lack of economic mobility, it's just a strip that covers the original cotton belt. And parts of the deep south. Scott Winship finds the same thing with his social capital. Uh, right. Yeah. I wish Scott was a bigger proponent of industrial policy because if you think about it, what was the what is what was the lasting effect of of, of slavery in, in economic terms was the delayed industrialization of the South as the North was embracing a kind of Hamiltonian vision and you know building centers of manufacturing excellence, the world's largest forgeries, stuff like that. The ability to enslave man substituted for the need to invent machines <laughs> right and that and that's that's the way to think about it because if it was simply that there was a taking that took place that you're owed back wages then you would expect the first free african americans to just bounce back but the reason that there's a persistent economic harm is because the entire region as a, as a place has been optimized around cheap and abundant labor, often free labor, and an agricultural economy that was backwards for a very long time. And so if you want to help the South, and really a lot of like the debates around wealth inequality, the race wealth gap and stuff like that, you dig into it, it really just comes down to this quite striking divergence between everywhere else and, 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 and a few Southern states. And those states were converging for a while. But I think since the mid 70s or so, they ceased to converge. And actually, there's now greater inequality within the African American population than there is in the broader economy. Because there are, there are folks who've been lucky enough to get a college education and they move 
and they, you know, they become a kind of upper class. But then there's even starker divides with the black working class. So if you wanted to do a targeted place-based policy, you, it's not it's it's not just congruent with what the actual problem is, with that they never industrialized, but you also end up hitting on all these other issues that are really dominating the, the conversation and the discourse these days, but really all traced to this lack of concerted public investment in the South. So if I were Elizabeth Warren, I would say, you know, actually cash payments may be may sound like the most progressive way of doing reparations or the most like way of signaling how woke you are or something like that. But if you really, really, really understood what needs to happen, we should have equivalent of of Sherman, you know, march back down there instead of tearing things down, building things up, building new infrastructure, you know, attracting industries. This is already happening somewhat on its own. You get, you know, manufacturing moving to the Carolinas and stuff like that. But it could be much more aggressive and done in a way that it is race neutral, but not place neutral. So continue on that theme. That's a very interesting construct. And by the way, I grew up in the upstate of South Carolina where BMW has its flagship. U.S. manufacturing facility. And I got to see firsthand some of the struggle to transition from a textile and agrarian economy for which there was no future to one where it's now much more R&D and manufacturing intensive. And it's a case that I like to point back to a lot because it's a case of past not being prologue. Very few people would have looked at a U.S. map and said, you know, it was going to become a hotspot for advanced auto manufacturing, R&D, export. It's the upstate of South Carolina. That was not the place, but it had infrastructure it had a fast-growing population and it had a lot of things that it had cheap and available land. So there were some non-recurring conditions that were present then. I'd say the one thing I, and I had not previously thought about place as a complement to or, a, or in place of a direct type of reparations policy, but there you have a lot of the conditions that you're looking for throughout the Southeast. And I, I don't know that it's really reduced wealth inequality, for example, in the upstate. I don't know that that's gone away. I don't know that the benefits of industrialization of that part of the Southeast have actually reached the most vulnerable African-American populations because those divides still remain very stark. So I wonder about the limits of, of that on its own, but that'll be a, a second podcast, Sam. We'll have to, we'll have to have. Well, it's the limits of it occurring through happenstance rather than. Yeah. So you think in a more intentionally place focused policy, that you, totally. you're likely to. And, and this is partly, again, my message to to conservative populists on the right that are trying to rethink through these issues and trying to build a new coalition after Trump and, and to say, and to recognize that the, the same things that are now afflicting the white working class have been afflicting parts of the South and, and the African-American community, you know, in the case of deindustrialization since at least the 70s, but really, really in a sense, since the founding of the country, that might lead to some very interesting <laughs> scenarios where you have, especially because, you know, Southern states tend to be more Republican, where you get Republicans who are not trying to redouble the cheap labor legacy. You know, a lot of the original transition to the South in terms of manufacturing was due to, to, due to right to work. Right. And even the case that you mentioned, I think there's another case in Chattanooga where, you know, Volkswagen... It's like, well, okay, we're here now. Now, next up, we got to set up the union. <laughs> like, what, what's that? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that's where reform really, to be most consequential, needs to begin at the in, at the state level in those places, uh, and then it can be complemented through the federal government through programs like the SBA. But it could also be part of a vision of America put forward. You could put nationalist terms around it, saying, you know, we are 
as you know, Chris Hayes has put it, a colony and a nation. We need to be just one nation, right? Hmm. So under that umbrella of Struggling Regions Initiative, you're looking at other things. What are the other categories beyond SBA and manufacturing and industrialization of those types of uh, struggling areas? What other categories of policy are you thinking through? Another really big one is, and, it, and all these things interrelate, fiscal federalism and public finance. So we have a paper in the can. It will be out shortly, maybe even before this podcast goes out by the Scanner Center senior fellow, Josh McCabe, building out a lot of the writing he's done on the broken system of fiscal federalism in the U.S. What this is referring to is the fact that different states have different fiscal capacities. And by that, I mean, for a given tax regime, how much money do you pull out of the economy? And if you're a poor state, if you have a low per capita income, you can't just simply raise taxes and get more money. The people with the money will flee. So when we talk about, for example, a contrast between Mississippi and Massachusetts, or West Virginia and Massachusetts, Josh has pointed out that you know, the West Virginia teacher strike, for, for example, they're, they're striking because they look at their wages and they say, oh my God, we're, not, we're making less, way below the national average. And you know, look at the teachers in Massachusetts, they make way more than us. Well, Josh points out that as a percent of state, of gross state product of the state GDP, the education, public education spending in West Virginia is proportional to Massachusetts. The reason their teachers are paid less is because it's a much poorer state. And so we have systems in the United States to try to rectify these imbalances. Because if we're going to have you know, one common trading market, we should have similar public goods provided across the country, similar levels of, of quality. And so, for example, we have what's called the FMAP formula and these matching formulas. So in Medicaid, for, for instance, in, under conventional Medicaid, there's a formula that calculates what your state's fiscal capacity is. And then you know, if you're a relatively poor state, you might get close to 100% of a match. So if you spend a dollar, you get a dollar. If you're a relatively rich state, you you are by statute limited to 50% of a match. So if you spend a dollar, the government pitches in 50 cents. The feds pitch in 50 cents. Josh points out that the fact that by statute, we put a floor on the match. So even if Luxembourg was in the center of the United States with you know per capita GDP of $150,000 or whatever ridiculous number it is, you know they would get a 50% match for on their Medicaid spending. But they have all the fiscal capacity in the world to self-finance their local programs. And so Josh walks through the impact of, of public of this kind of perverted system of fiscal federalism through education, through TANF and welfare programs, and through healthcare, and shows how they can be improved to both increase equity between interstate public finances, but also, interestingly, improve the politics of states and, and economic development. One of the issues is if you're a relatively poor state, you don't have the fiscal capacity in the first place to make the kind of investments in infrastructure and human capital that will set you up to be a rich state in the future. And conversely, so this creates like these vicious and virtuous feedback loops where if you're a really wealthy state, if you're New Yorker or cities in Northern Virginia or whatever, you have a ton of extra money to dole out to attract businesses to give everyone universal pre-K or, or whatever. And that just makes your place even more attractive. And it continues this cycle that pulls different places apart. So it has an economic development component. And then the state, the component on state politics is that, you know, we have this perception that there's like this mean Republican effect where, you know, Republicans come in and they try to throw work requirements on Medicaid and they try to kick people off welfare. And they, you know, they go the Sam Brownback route and they 
they just cut taxes and so on. But a lot of this is, is a misperception or misdiagnosis. The reason the politics of austerity are common in these red states is not because they're red, but because they're poor. And when you have relatively limited fiscal capacity, increasing the welfare program comes out of the middle class public education spending. And so you get all the suburban people voting for the person that will prioritize their kids' public education over the welfare queens, right? And so there's the dynamic of states being perpetually squeezed in these, in these poor red states leads to the politics of austerity that a lot of progressives will write think pieces about, but don't seem as willing to admit that things like the 90% match rate and in, in the Medicaid expansion actually exacerbate. That's fascinating. I know you've also thought about place-based incentives like Opportunity Zones, and mm -hmm. you've written about at least one piece where you talk about how struggling areas can most effectively use Opportunity Zones to spur growth. And you talk about manufacturing extension services, you talk about place-based scholarship programs, you think about the role of community colleges. How close are you following the progress of, of the policy? And what about this piques your interest either as a concern or as something you think there's, there's something to build on? Yeah, I'm following pretty closely. So the Niskanian Center will have a project that will be released shortly. It's, it, the, the analysis is all done. We're just constructing a, a website for it to host it, where we've constructed a five-point index of every single opportunity zone and every single other census track to do comparisons. And the index covers a measure of poverty, not just poverty, but poverty intensity, how intense the poverty is, the skills and employment composition of the census track, the rate of immigration to measure if people are coming to that place, a measure of urban renewal that tries to pick up changes in household vacancies, new construction, a measure of education. And so we have like these cool histogram analyses that are in like a little polygon that show every single location. The goal of that is to set a kind of baseline because there are a lot of worries about opportunity zones. There's the worry that simply using the tax code as the main method and especially a capital gains break is predominantly going to benefit you know, real estate development, which might come in and you know, beautify a place, but then by nature attract more upwardly mobile people, more yuppies, and, and push out lower income people. So that's one of the concerns. We want an ability to measure that. So you know, hypothetically, we would see the urban renewal metric move, but not necessarily the poverty metric, and maybe not even necessarily the skills composition. So for example, if, if we see a big spike in, in migration, and a big spike in urban renewal, maybe we call that a gentrifying opportunity zone. And we're trying not to make any normative assessments of these things, but we want a way of, of, of measuring what's happening. One of the other analyses we've done, and which we'll release, is we use a, a pretty uh, interesting um, machine learning technique. It's, it's called K-means. It's a way of just pouring everything in the kitchen sink, every variable you can find into a, into a machine learning algorithm, and it, it spits out intuitive clusters. We've done this for the entire opportunity zones, all 8,700 of them, and produced these 15 intuitive clusters. So, for example, it just automatically spits out all the opportunity zones that happen to be on or near a college campus, mm -hmm. right? Because this is a, these are places that have people who seemingly don't have income, but are strangely all under the age of 25, <laughs> or it spits out all the native reserves. And there are 15 of these categories, and, and our hypothesis is that we should really be thinking about these zones and these different larger clusters differently, that the effects that we observe in one might not generalize to the other. So these are some of the things we're trying to, to learn about.
that's fascinating. And it, it gets at one of the big blank spots in the commentary around opportunity zones so far, which is an attempt to generalize what's good or bad writ large rather than to localize the answers to those questions. And even the use case for opportunity zones, because it's a malleable incentive that can be used across a wide array of different types of activities, it is hard. I think it's, it breaks the brain a little bit for a lot of the traditional commentary around economic development programs or incentives because it's, it's not a single use case type of, you know, the low income housing tax credit tells you the name what it's there to be mm-hmm. used for, right? And it can work well or less well in certain areas, but, but the variability of this policy and the variability of the places that have been designated creates a real challenge for organizing strategy on a local level and even then evaluating over time did we succeed in effectuating that strategy and did that strategy work? All right. On top of that, every state is having different things that they're layering on top exactly. of them. So, you know, some states have more aggressive incentives for affordable housing, for example. So it gets very difficult to to think about how you construct these sort of natural experiments where it's going to take a lot of work. Uh, and so we're we're contributing, we're trying to do our part to build out some of the some of the stuff and to and to build it out with a relatively agnostic research focused stance because i think unfortunately the opportunity zones legislation in part i think because it was passed within the trump tax reform despite being technically bipartisan you got you know tim scott and cory booker in the same bill there's jumping to conclusions based on very limited anecdotes it's a really a good case study of how people try to take something and just jam it into their existing narrative when we should all just take a step back and say this might work. It might not. We don't even know what work means, really. Let's check back in a decade. That runs counter to our typical timelines, for sure. And that's, as an advocate for the policy and as uh, somebody who's involved in the, that process really deeply, I struggle and we struggle at EIG as well with being both affirmative of we should try this and here are the potential upsides, but also cautious about drawing conclusions about whether and how it's working on a larger scale. And it's because, in part, the depth of the challenge that this is hoping to, in part, address, right? not on its own, going to solve these problems, but to chip away at that larger challenge, it took decades to get there. It's not going to take a year or two to get out. It's not, you're not going to see a massive turnaround in a short time period. And there's all kinds of measurement challenges. There's all kinds of, there's all kinds of challenges with just getting to the place where you feel like you're dealing with a, this is a representative sample of activity upon which to judge, to make a judgment. You know, right now, many states are just now getting their strategy in place for how to, how to utilize it. Many states have done nothing, right? Nothing at all. And so there's no intentionality whatsoever. So I think that's, that's been one of the challenges. And you're, you're exactly right that the opportunity zones are a casualty of, of the branding of the TCJA. People don't need to know much more than that to make a judgment about whether they like the policy. And that's just kind of the sign of the times we live in. My hope is that over time, what may make this durable, and I'm curious to hear how you're thinking about this, the fact that there are so many jurisdictions across the country that are seeing some progress and that they cross party lines, they're urban to rural, it's not, it's not one typology of place, that from a political standpoint, it, it certainly makes something more durable when there's a broader coalition of people invested in, in its success. And I, I, you separate the national politics from the state and local reality. That seems to be the case as we go around the country. But how much are you actually hearing from communities? How, how much are you specifically focusing on individual case studies? Or is the challenge right now for you just getting a, a kind of analytical framework in place first? We're trying to do both. To your point, I think there is a world where 
just all the rabble rousing and saber rattling about opportunity zones has itself a chilling effect. Because if you are making an investment that the first step up in basis isn't for a decade and you don't get the full benefit for 15 years, there's a, a time consistency problem, what we'd say in economics. There's, you make a promise today in law, but if there's a possibility of that law changing in the next 15 years, you know, if, if Andrew Yang's right, who knows what's going to happen, <laughs> then it, that can itself can make use of the program limited. But I think there's reason to think that the, the program is resilient in part because there is this divide between, you know, what journalists at Vox and Slate write about and what the national conversation is. Because, you know, going back to the point made a while ago that the Democrats are more and more urban than ever before, if Elizabeth Warren came into office and said, we're going to scrap the Opportunity Zones project, she'd piss off every single mayor <laughs> of every major city, all blue cities in the country. Because, you know, this DC just announced one, a, a really big partnership with Rockefeller on Opportunity Zones in the area. And DC is not by no means a, a red city. Now, most of the advocates on the ground, most of the people responsible for seeing this policy put in place are blue city mayors. Exactly. Uh, including, you know, even you get outside of the DCs and New Yorks, it's, it's the Dayton, Ohio's. You know, it's places that are both economically important in this story, but also politically very relevant, especially right now, Ohio, Pennsylvania, et cetera. So I, I think that's right. I think the, we did a little graphic, which we haven't released yet, but we looked at the median income distribution of opportunity zones and we looked at press stories have focused and it's almost exclusively on Portland, New York, Miami, San Francisco. Mm. It's, it's so trying to tell the story of left behind areas of the country and struggling communities in this policy through the most outlier examples in the entire economy. Right. Forget about opportunity zones kind of economic concentration. And also places with all with major uh, newspapers. <laughs> that's, that's right. So, so there's, I think there's a other side of the coin, but I, I agree with your point earlier that the saber rattling around this does have a chilling effect. We hear that anecdotally all the time from everyone from fund managers to local policymakers who just have a hard time cutting through that noise because people come with so much baggage, preconceived notions and baggage to the conversation. My hope is that it's a shock to the system. The policy serves as a shock to the system to A, to think about and, and pay more attention to these regional divides that should not be acceptable you know, that, we, that we, we shouldn't accept as status quo and to create an accountability structure where folks are more invested using all the different tools and trying to address that because capital alone obviously is not going to solve these problems. It's what do you do with that catalyst? It's, you know, what kind of organizing function does that, does that serve? So the, shocking the market and also shocking the local accountability system politically, philanthropically, everybody into a, a different paradigm, I think is one of the best outcomes that this could lead to. And it's, again, still too early to tell whether that happens at scale, but we are seeing it happen in specific local environments where it really was a wake-up call. It was a sense of urgency with an expiring incentive is useful. It, it creates a useful forcing function for local action. So studying that is really, from a think tank and research perspective, that's where I think there's going to be a lot of upside in the years to come is seeing how do these different places actually jump in and what, what was the chain reaction of behavior that didn't necessarily need opportunity zones in a perfect world to mm -hmm. create, but that's that's what it took in this case. The other thing opportunity zones do just as a as a design is it's it gives governors and through where they nominate opportunity zones to local leaders in those areas, the ability to give 
policy to give incentives using the federal tax code, right? <laughs> so you're using the federal capital gains tax to incentivize businesses. And, and one of the reasons why this is interesting is because it circumvents the usual public finance problem that state and local governments have that are, if you're a local government in a distressed area, a poor county or municipality or, or, or Stockton, California, you don't have all this extramural budget to spend on incentives to attract businesses to your region. So we've, we've broken that circuit. Which, which is something that no one has, I'm always surprised that nobody has picked up on this thread. To me, that was one of the most important design features of this policy is that it allowed places that don't, I mean, to your point earlier about fiscal federalism, these places that start off poor and either have to mortgage their future entirely with their own tax base or just can't compete at all. It helps to level that playing field a little bit, not perfectly, but significantly, I think, in circumventing the need for the locality or the state that doesn't start off in a very advantageous position to bear the brunt of the incentives, which we know that, I think this is another area where we agree, the traditional state economic development incentive process is really fundamentally broken and creates this spiral of decline in a lot of places that already can't afford it. But I'm just always surprised that that's not been something that, that has been picked up more. Same. I think that, you know, one of our senior fellows, Nathan Jensen, is probably one of the nation's leader, leading critics of firm-specific tax subsidies, things like the Carrier Deal or the Foxconn Deal or the HQ2 Deal. He has a great book called Incentive to Pander, where he um, he's based in Texas now. And so he's he's like the enemy number one of the, the Texas Development Fund, <laughs> which gives these really crony handouts to to individual businesses to come set up shop, even though they were going to come anyway. You know, one, of the, one of the most egregious cases, for example, is I think it's called ITEP, I-T-E-P, which is a a board internal to the Louisiana legislature is made up of sitting Louisiana legislatures, and they basically up or down approve property tax abatements and other forms of abatement for the oil refining industry. And it's remarkable going back to to public finance and fiscal federalism and fiscal capacity. Louisiana could have a lot more fiscal capacity, but they abate something like eighty to ninety percent of all the refining revenue and refineries. Can't pick up and move. I That's hate right. to break it. <laughs> so, it so there's, so you know, I'm not going to lie. And Nate Jensen is a, a bit skeptical of opportunity zones, but I, I've been, you know, trying to take the middle ground here to say, look, look, I, you're you're skeptical because you have a career based on these dubious tax incentive programs that are targeted on particular businesses. This gets back to behavior that you were talking about earlier. It's a category of behavior that's being incentivized, not a specific firm or specific industry, which, again, admittedly imperfect. Like and all, new. And new, right. right? New value creation, which directionally seems, continues to seem right to me. Obviously, I, again, I believe this is an experiment worth trying, but that's another nuance that th this has often been lumped in with. It's like the Amazon incentive. No, it's categorically the opposite. It's not firm specific and it's not it's not even eligible to larger incumbents, right, for locational decisions. So those are things that I think the Nate Jensen's of the world eventually will come around on, at least in part. But everyone should be skeptical, right? I mean, that's any new policy we should be we should be holding it to a high standard. It's the cynicism, I think, that's tied to the politics that I worry about more than right. the skepticism. The other thing that I think is interesting about this, and it kind of touches on some of the themes that we've already talked about, is it's a very Hayekian incentive in the sense that it assumes a thousand smaller decision makers are better than one large central decision maker. And it allows for that kind of emergent order in places where you have entrepreneurial potential, you have economic 
capacity that's untapped and you have, you have the ability to reorient those pieces, but you would never get to that outcome if you were having somebody kind of decide right. from the top down or you have one rifle shot because this is non-zero sum in the sense that it's not a tax credit being handed out on the front end. So places have a reason to organize because they have a legitimate chance in a non-zero sum way. If York gets a lot of investment, that doesn't mean that Erie can't also get a lot of investment if they put their own pieces together. So I think that decentralized version, it's a pretty radical departure from typical incentive policy and typical federal tax policy in particular. And I think over time, at least this is what I keep telling myself, uh, over time, those kind of elements will both emerge as something analysts and researchers are more cognizant of, and the outcomes will reflect those design features as well, which will become, become a little bit more self-reinforcing. It'll get people to pay attention because mm-hmm. those outcomes are unexpected given the history of other place-based incentive programs and, and economic development incentives in general. I think the skepticism is warranted. I like Nate a lot. I think he's a really important voice, but I worry that even for people like Nate, they don't always separate the different kinds of incentives. And a lot of the past failure, I'm sure you're seeing this as well, a lot of the past failure of place-based programs loom large with opportunity zones because, well, this other thing had the word zone in it. It also used the tax system. It didn't work. And so we already, we already know the line that we already know these programs don't work has been used in almost every critique and yet doesn't account for the fact that a lot of very different design decisions were made as a result of those other failures. So like we're right. actually building on that doesn't mean that this is going to work. It just means it's going to fail for different reasons if it fails. So I'm really excited about the kind of the measurement work you guys are doing because that kind of analytical framework is very important to measure over time what works and what doesn't. And even if the federal government does its own measurement, it's unlikely to be as sophisticated as what you're, what you're describing. What about the human capital piece? You, you mentioned depopulating type of areas. And is that an effect of, will repopulation and a renewal of human capital be the effect of these other decisions? Or do we need to make that a cause that leads to the the revitalization of areas? Which direction does the causation go? Well, I think as in a lot of equilibrium, it's nonlinear. That that was a leading (laughs) question. (laughs) And this is one reason why I'm generally, you know, also share some skepticism for purely tax-based incentive programs. Because if the problem with the U.S. economy is that we've walked down this path of, you know, a third of the country that gets college degrees and a fraction of them who have advanced degrees are pulling away from everyone else, and that we have no reason to expect we can get the college completion rate to 100%, reducing the cost of capital is not going to really move the needle on that. So I think that the education and the human capital problem in America is tricky because of culture. So a lot of people want to adopt something like a German tracking system, where you get put into apprenticeships if you're more manual or or you go off to college and you sort of you, you sort of have your fate set relatively young you know despite all the kind of critical cultural criticism about like a you know public education is just preparing you for work it actually does it, like, the exact opposite <laughs> it doesn't do anything for work it's really actually rooted in the liberal education model that you know we should all be good citizens and everyone needs a sport everyone needs an instrument and <laughs> and so you know I mean you know the Chinese are able to uh, do uh, mental math and magic with their Invisible abacus. Well, well, we get the best, you know, college basketball teams. But, <laughs> but be honest, which one would you take? I, w- I would take the basketball. Yeah, yeah. You're Canadian. You don't. That's that's not. Yeah, I think that the, I think there's going to be a reckoning. Let me put it this way. <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, Eric Weinstein calls it the embedded growth hypothesis. Mm. That uh, there's all these institutions that were developed in a period of rapid economic growth, and if economic growth doesn't return, then it was never a Ponzi scheme. 
it was intergenerational. It depended on one person passing the torch to mm-hmm. another. So if you graduate from law school, you would start out as a, a lower level lawyer, and then you know ultimately you'd you'd become a partner. But that requires since there's always like two partners for every f- four assistants or associate lawyers, like that doesn't add up. We all can't be partners in the law firm. There's going to be associates. It can add up if the whole pie is growing rapidly, but the fact that it's slowed down, and not only has it slowed down, but rate, rates of people going into law school and all these other programs haven't declined or haven't equilibrated at all. There's going to be a reckoning. And you're already seeing this, like George Washington University just announced a massive plan to scale back their faculty and, and the program offerings they have and the number of students that they're going to accept every year. And it's not going to be pretty when it, when it happens, but I think education, higher education in America really is in a kind of bubble. You have people digging themselves into debt to get basically a signaling device at the expense of investments in a wide array of other kinds of human capital, vocational trading, apprenticeship, that we seem unable to actually move on in part because the decision-making authority to actually reform those programs is so dispersed. Even if Bill Gates could come up with the ultimate teacher's curriculum that like made every, every student have 150 IQ, how do you get that dispersed through the system? The economist Brian Kaplan has an anecdote where he says he's a big education skeptic, but he says, no, there are these things that work. You know, rote learning works. If you want to teach your kids Spanish, make them hang out with Spanish people all the time and, and do immersion learning. That works. We have these things that work. But, you know, he, he sat in on one of his student, on one of his kids' classes, and the teacher said, okay, everybody pull out your highlighter. And because Brian had written a book on the topic, he was like, I, I know the research on highlighters. Highlighting does not improve your memory whatsoever. And if that research has been known for years. If I go and tell the teacher, hey, highlighting doesn't do anything. Do you think that's going to change? <laughs> that's going to change anything? Is that going to like become national policy? Is that going to become part of Common Core? Probably not. So I, I'm I'm a big kind of pessimist on the state of U.S. education because I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. So that we don't end on a pessimistic note, <laughs> I want to end. I always try to include one thing that is out of left field and a benefit from having an eclectic group of of guests. Yours is make America boom again, or one of yours is a fascination with supersonic flight. And you've taken that on as a policy and regulatory challenge. First of all, why? With all the other things you could be focused on, why that? I love the fact you did. So I'm just, it's not obvious. And what do you think the future looks like for supersonic industry in this country? Yeah. So that project dates back to 2016. I was at the Mercatus Center at the time and my colleague, Eli Dorado, we worked together on a bunch of stuff, um, tech policy stuff. And we kind of sat down one day and we just like wrote down a notepad, like what are the like five moonshot ideas. Like, we don't have to know anything about them, just something about it speaks to us. So we wrote, you know, Supersonic It was like number one on the list. And we knew the Concorde existed. Like we had some vague idea of what Supersonic Flight was, but we had this like just open question, like why, what happened to the Concorde? You know, these were questions that we wanted to answer for ourselves. And when we dug into it, you know, one of the first things we discovered is, you know, the Concorde, which was a joint effort between the British and the French, to produce a supersonic Mach 2 airplane, it was designed by committee in a very literal sense. Often you had debates over, like, would the French factory get to manufacture a part or the British manufacturer get to manufacture the part? And it had one iteration. Now, there was, some, there was a few plans 
leading up to it. But when they built the first Concorde, they built 14 of them and they never built a new one. They never tried to make a better one. It flew for 27 years nonetheless on a limited number of routes because it didn't have the range. It was also incredibly loud and dirty. It had an afterburner that dumped kerosene on takeoff and you could see this black tail behind it. So when it finally failed, when it finally ended in 2003, the question remained, why in that duration did the private sector never jump in and try to build a supersonic plane of its own? Well, reason number one is if you try to model the business case for supersonic flight, you know, Sting used to fly the Concorde and brag about it because he had $20,000 to blow on a, on a transatlantic flight. The model really looks similar to the Tesla strategy of you build the, you build the Roadster first and you move down into the economy car later because the very first unit is going to be low volume and very luxury. And it turns out that the low volume luxury case for supersonic are business jets. And then it turns out the business jets predominantly fly over land, 70% of the time over land, because you're going from one city to another, maybe LA to San Francisco or San Francisco to New York, you know, maybe seat 14 people, something like that. So it turns out that you need overland supersonic to even begin thinking about you know, moving up the scale to a passenger jet, because these technologies are things that you discover as you're doing it, right? You can't just sort of sit back and try to design a working plane from scratch, otherwise you get something that's pretty unprofitable. So then we dug even deeper, and we discovered that when the Concorde was out, it was initially first flight in 1969, I think, really began commercial passengers in like 72, 73. In 1973, one of the early environmental movements adopted the Concorde as an enemy. It was called the Anti-Concorde Project, and it was, it was pitched as this like, oh, the Concorde, and you know, talk about definite optimism. They had these like theories that the Concorde in, in 50 years was every single flight would be a supersonic plane. We have kerosene everywhere. It's like, well, man, I, I wish we were living <laughs> in, that, in that world. Instead, what happened is, you know, stagnation after that. But they had this like outsized fear of what would happen at the Concorde and they spread it around. They, they convinced residential associations, Congress people. To this day, there's a caucus. I think it's like a 16 member caucus in Congress called the Quiet Skies Caucus dedicated to uh, airport noise nimbies. So in <laughs> 73, FAA, under this pressure, banned supersonic over land. And our argument in that paper, as we worked through it, was a lot has happened in the intervening years. A lot of technology has changed. We can now design planes and computer simulations with fluid dynamics so we can understand what the best way of shaping a plane is before having to build a, an aluminum plane and test it in an air tunnel. We have carbon fiber production techniques where we can get shapes that we couldn't do with aluminum, heat resistances that we couldn't get with aluminum. All this stuff is also incredibly cheap. It's like a commodity. And then we've had like a massive innovation in, in jet engines to become quieter, more powerful, to the point where you, can, you could build a version of the Concorde today. It wouldn't need the afterburner. So there have been a host of these innovations. And yet, if you were the Elon Musk of supersonic, you couldn't get off the ground for all these years because your first entry point and the business model would have been, it was prohibited. So we argued that the, what America wanted and what the FAA wanted, what Congress wanted was a noise limit, but they got a speed limit, right? Effectively in the United States, we have a speed limit of one mock, <laughs> unless you're military. And so, you know, we said in this paper, like, what would it look like if you replaced the ban with a noise rule based on something that's reasonable and practical something that is based on noises that we already take for granted in our day-to-day -day life, like a door slam rather than a, a thunderous boom. And so that, that, that was the origin of that paper idea. That 
miraculously got seen by Mark Sanford. We had a Wall Street Journal op-ed on the topic and Sanford's office called us up and started working with them. Later on, Corey Gardner and Mike Lee put forward an amendment to overturn the ban on supersonic and give the FAA a shot clock basically to produce a new noise rule for supersonic planes that was uh, economically reasonable. And then uh, but just by luck of the timing, the FAA reauthorization was coming up. And so we ended up getting a version of our concept into the reauthorization, which ended up being a little watered down from what we wanted. But essentially, the FAA going forward has to come to Congress every two years and explain why it still has the, the ban in place on overland supersonic. And then it has to commit to leadership internationally, which is really important for because a lot of these um, noise standards are set by a UN body. It has to create customized takeoff and landing noise rules for supersonic, given their particular technological needs. And so going forward, there are a number of supersonic companies that are uh, have raised a lot of capital and are pretty far ahead. I think the company that's most far ahead, in my opinion, is, is Boom Aerospace, based in Colorado. And they're betting on a regulatory environment that's going to be permissive of this behavior. Well, they're betting on the existing regulatory... Like they, they will... Assuming they produce the plane that they want to produce, they will they can thrive in the current regulatory environment. They'll be doing over-ocean flights. So you could go from New York to London in two and a half hours, San Francisco to Tokyo in five hours. Mm. It's just cutting every single over-ocean route in half. And the remarkable thing is because of all these technological leaps, they are projecting that the, the unit cost, the per passenger cost will be the same as business travel. You should get like a lifetime pass on the first iteration of those new supersonics. Well, that's fascinating. Sam, this has been a great conversation. I feel like we could do this again and spend another two hours, but thanks for coming on the show and look forward to having you back. Thank you, John. It's been fun. And that will do it for this episode of The Deep Dive. Thanks again to Sam Hammond for being such a great guest. We had to give him two episodes. As a reminder, you can find Sam on Twitter at Hammond Cheese. He's a great follow. And you can find me on Twitter at LatiriDC. Shoot me a note. Let me know what you thought of the episode. Until next time, be well, and thanks for listening. <laughs>